Here we go, season seven. All aboard. If you missed it, here's what we believe. 66 book canon. We believe in a 66 book canon. There is no more, there is no less. It's 66 books. That Yeshua, who is preached by the apostles in the Gospels and in the epistles, is the only means of salvation, as we would call him Yeshua, means. In other words, justification is by faith alone and not by works that any man should boast. Faith working through love. We are unashamedly Trinitarian. We're also unashamedly uh, doctor, believe in the doctrines of grace, what is commonly referred to as Calvinistic. The, the New Covenant is not time-bound. That is to say that the, the horizon of the faith of our father Abraham is no different. Right. No, no, it is not shy of the horizon of our hope and our faith. In other words, the, that the salvation, salvation was salvation was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Right. Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. This is Messiah Matters number 304, refreshed after some Spokane vacationing. My name is Caleb Hegg. Drinking lemon water instead of coffee. Oh, oh, In Spokane, but not feeling so refreshed. Why? I got to find out where Caleb went. I'm Rob Banoff. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> you know, we come over to Spokane and... Uh, it's hot, dude. You should have been here this week, man. No, we uh, shouldn't have. It's hot over here. For those of you who don't... On you guys, it poured on you guys when you were here, right? Well, it did, but then it got super hot. When we left, it, I mean, it, it was like, you know, I'm white. And I mean, like, put two... You know, when you, when you, when you hit two chalk erasers together and boom, the cloud goes up, put a face on it. That's me. I am like you get into the get into the sun and it takes me about 0.3 seconds to be sunburned completely. Ouch. And uh, so when we left, yeah, it was uh, it was a thing. It was it was hot out when we left. My kids are not so because my wife is Mexican. Uh, you know, my kids, they look really white, but then they get out in the in the sun and they just tan beautiful but uh yeah i'm i'm one of those spf like 95 smother like bathe yourself bathtub of of uh sunscreen kind of a guy so i'm glad we're back over here but it's i mean it's hot over here till yesterday it was like it was 85 90 degrees and i know people down in arizona are saying that's not hot but for me that's hot <sighs> all right how you been man it's been two weeks I know it was, it's weird when there's a week and we don't have a Messiah matters. It feels, it feels off. It's like, Oh, what's going on? Have you, uh, have you been, uh, studying well in the past two weeks? Yeah, I've got, a, um, 
this upcoming conference that we're, Lord willing, will be attending, Messiah 2020. Yes. And it's on the East Coast, and yep. I'm super excited about it. Caleb, you and I are going to do some sort of Messiah Matters interactive talk. Uh, you and I are going to have to get on the same page about what we're going to do for that. <laughs> I, I or maybe we'll just, we, maybe our best stuff is spontaneous. We still don't know what we're going to talk about. The, the funny thing is, is that I told the, we had a meeting with the people who are, and they listen to this show, by the way. Uh, so I'm sure they'll hear this. We had a meeting with the people who, who are putting the conference on and wonderful people. And I just love them to death. And, and they said, uh, I said, what do you want us to talk about? And they said, what, you guys figure it out, whatever you want to talk about. It's like, we trust you. We trust you. <laughs> And I was like, maybe we'll do the same thing we did last time, which is figure it out in the lobby five minutes before we go on. And everybody laughed. And I think they thought I was joking. But that's at when was that the when we were in Kansas City? Yeah, that's exactly when. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what happened. Or not. Can no, sorry. Oklahoma, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. Sorry. Oklahoma. Sorry. All those who came and saw us in Oklahoma City. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, hey, I have some ideas. Cool. I have some ideas and we'll hash them out as we get, you know. The plane rides are always fun. I don't even know if we're meeting up on the plane ride. Anyway, nobody cares about this except for us. Okay, um, let's jump into this because we got we got some things to talk about. We, you know, people have sent in some emails. Before we get started, uh, there's a couple things you should know. First of all, two five three four six five thirty two zero five is our comment line. I'm going to give it to you again so get your pens ready. Two five three four six five thirty two zero five. You're not going to talk to us. You're just going to talk to a message machine so you can uh, say whatever you want. We write to, it on your hand. Yes, we listen to every single one of those messages that come in. At least I do. Um, and then if they are, uh, if they are, you know, as interesting as I think they are, then I send them over to uh, Rob as well. And usually they get on the show. You can also send us an email. See Hag at TorahResource.com. It's C-H-E-G-G at TorahResource.com. Don't forget to go to Torah Resource. This show is brought to you by all of our wonderful producers. Our summer producership should be up. Oh, I'd say probably sometime this week. And so you can get your summer producership. And um, you can do that on TorahResource.com. Also, you can support this show for as little as $5 a month. But perhaps just as important, and if not more important, do me a favor right now. Stop what you're doing. Go to our YouTube page and click the subscribe button. It might not seem like it's doing anything, but for us, it actually does something because YouTube gives us more love the more people hit that subscribe button. So don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. Go and do it right now. And if you want to uh, always see that videos are coming from us, like when they come up, then hit the little bell button, and that'll uh, notify you every single time that we post a video. And we do that how many times a week? Does anyone know except for me? Rob, do you know how many videos we post a week? For Messiah Matters, one or two. We post five videos a week for Messiah Matters. Oh, because that means there's small edited uh Yes. Okay. Five a week. So if you never want to miss one of those, go ahead and click that bell button. Okay. So we have some uh, some things to talk about. Bree writes in, this is a this is a Rob question, and he already wrote back to her, but it's such a good question that we'll we'll entertain it for all. Bree writes in, she says, while listening to an audiobook called How to Read and Understand the Old Testament by Michael D. Gwinnon, I think it is. G-U-I-N-A-N. He made a statement that I never knew. The statement is, the Hebrew language is just one dialect of Canaanite. 
wondering how true is this statement. From the beginning, the author blatantly states that the Israel people are just a sect of Canaanites. How true is this statement? Any insights would be helpful. May Yah bless you. Rob, go. Yeah, I thought this was great. Thank you, Bree. And and we had some sub- subsequent back and forth on that, as Caleb's aware. Uh, but I thought, you know, this would be a good question, especially those who are learning Hebrew. And, you know, we've talked about this before. We've talked, for uh, for example, the et, like the Aleph Tav, which right. we call, you know, the direct object marker. It occurs in uh, extra biblical, you know, what do you call it? Um, non-biblical Hebrew yeah. exam, uh, text like uh, Moabite. It's right. in the Moabite stele, right? Which is a, which is um, the king of Moab saying how he beat Israel in a battle and all. Israel and Yodhevave and and but the et in there is used just as you would expect it in terms of uh, grammar as a direct object marker, and so if that's true. If the Aleph Tav is a part of human language more broadly, specifically what we call Northwest Semitic language, so there's a direct object marker in Aramaic and uh, and in, as we know, Moabite, etc., um, that are not. It's not scripture in those cases. Right. It's just it's just you know uh, mundane you know inscription evidence from the ancient uh, land of ancient Israel and its environs. So the first part of Bree's question has to do with how do we understand Hebrew as a language in and of itself? Is somehow Hebrew special, right? distinct to where now because, it's, because uh, the Torah is written in Hebrew or Isaiah wrote in Hebrew or Jeremiah or the prophets or the Psalms, that somehow the Hebrew language itself must be reflect um, something elevated over against the other languages of the world. And we've talked about this before. Obviously, I'm going to let you keep going here, Rob, but the point is is that within Judaism, they're going to say yes. It's the right. it's the it's the uh holy Lashon, language. Lashon yeah. Kodesh, yeah. yeah. It's the, the Loishan Kodesh. Yeah. Yeah, for exactly. a good uh for Ashkenazi <laughs> Kodesh. Yeah. So, um and we I think anyone who's listened to this show um, with any regularity knows that we, we don't believe that. We, we believe that, uh, that Hebrew is a common language. In fact, it was one of the most common languages. Keep going, Rob. We're well, back yeah, in the, in the, it, it was, well, it was cultivated um, in, in ancient Israel, right? Over against, we know there were other languages like Akkadian, right. you know, Egyptian, Hittite, Right. And, and one of our one of our good friends from the from the world of faith and academia, Dr. Ben, Ben, Benjamin Noonan or Ben Noonan, uh, his dissertation is on uh, these loan words in the Hebrew Bible that come from other languages. You know how you teach a, a side note, but in terms of Dr. Noonan, you know how a teacher, you know, a teacher is a good teacher is when they start talking about their dissertation and they suck you in. It's it can be the most boring, main, <laughs> mundane thing ever. Like, oh, I'm you know, I asked Noonan. I said, Doctor Noonan, what do you, what, what what do you write in your dissertation? This is years ago. What do you write in your dissertation on? He said Hebrew loan words in Daniel. I said I don't even know what that is. And since then, he you know he opened my eyes 
to Hebrew loan words. Okay, keep going. Yeah, so so the idea is what makes, and I, I'm not trying to change the lanes or derail that initial question, but if the first part of Bree's question is, do we understand Hebrew as a dialect of Canaanite? Right. And that means we're going to have some language that we're going to call Canaanite. Well, what is Canaanite? Well, all we have from if if we're looking from a materialist view or the view we're just going to look at inscription evidence so take the faith element out and we're just going to put on our archaeological hats and we scour the levant you know the ancient israel and we find inscriptions and then we try to say well this looks like it's probably from such and such a century bc or whatever well we have the the ugaritic text right that's the from Rashamra, which is way up north. And that has the the story of Baal and and various laws and it was international trade and everything. And that's it's it's like a Hebrew. I mean it it, it has some poetry that that has some similar parallelisms that we find in biblical Hebrew. And it's dated to what 14th century BC. Um and so we see that there's this sense of what we call scholars will call Northwest Semitics. Right. And it's differentiated from the Eastern Semitic would be like Akkadian, right? They still use Malku, right? For, for, for uh, King. It's from Melech. It's for, it's the same core word used in Mesopotamia among the Assyrians and Babylonians for King, the same word for father, the same word for, Sun, you know what I mean? There's right. more vocab. And the same with what we call South Arabian or South Semitic would be like Arabian languages, right? And so what scholars do are try to say, wow, these language, these languages are allied languages. They're allies of one another. Right. They share a core vocab. And and you know, um, and they're they share certain vocab and maybe sometimes some grammatical and verbal. This can, uh, I mean, constructions. This can be uh, highlighted uh, very easily for most people who don't know any Hebrew or any other Semitic language. For instance, in Hebrew, you would say Shalom Aleichem, peace be upon you. In Arabic, you'd say Asalam Aleichem, and that's the same thing. But right, right. You, so you can hear the, the same... Or Aramaic, Shalom Aleichem. Shalom yeah, exactly. You have the same Shalom or Salam in Arabic, the shin shifts to a s sound, but it's exactly right. Okay, so the point is, if this is true, where where does the holiness begin? Does the holiness begin? Yeah, yeah good point. <laughs> where does holiness begin? Uh, is holiness in the language? Right. There's no, we have no indication in the apostolic writings that Yeshua or any of his disciples viewed Hebrew as some sort of holy language, or anything like that. Um, well, another another good illustration of this would be the different dialects within England. I mean, you have northern, you know. Oh, the, yeah. The, you, well, you have northern like accents, and then you have southern accents. You have you know all these different places have all these different accents. So if you took that same model, and it's not always easy for one to understand. They have to like, okay. <laughs> so if God's going to make one of those one of those accents, uh, you know, holy. Which one and why? What right. sets it apart? Right. And what, one thing that really seals the deal is the giving of the Holy Spirit on Shavuot, on right. Pentecost. It, it, they didn't all learn Hebrew. They all heard the mighty works of God in their own tongue. Right. What does that tell us? And and why 
why is the gospel uh, shared where it says, you know, Yeshua on the cross, you know, Lama Lama, uh, Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani, which is actually an era transcription of Aramaic. And then it says, which means, my God, my God, wherever you're forsaking me. In other words, the gospel gives us two languages saying, yeah, or, or it calls Peter, it's, his name's Petra, right? Peter, Petras, but also Kepha, or uh, Abba, Pater, Father, Abba, Father. It, it's saying it's, it doesn't matter what language, we're supposed, right. to, we're supposed to understand the concepts that go across language. Now, it's true, however, there, are, there is vocabulary that is not translatable like Pesach or right. Shabbat, yep. right? Or important concepts. And then those are taught in the Bible, right? Those two concepts. Okay. But now back to the idea of the first part of Bree's question was, is it right to think, is it helpful to think of Hebrew as a dialect of ancient Canaanite language? I would say not really, because Canaanite seems to be, you associate Canaanites, if you read the Bible with like the, pagan inhabitants of the land of Israel and God's judging them. And, and to frame it that Hebrew is a dialect of Canaanite makes it sound, it can shift to the leftist agenda, which is say, yeah, you know, King David never existed. Right. These people came in, stole the language and wrote an artificial history to try to make their nation, you know, comparable. And there's art, there's uh, scholars that argue that they say, yeah, Moses never existed. There never was a King David what you did is you had these, these, you know, people come in and they made up their own myths about their own history and tried to use that to justify their own kingship, you know, at a later period. So that's, that's the slippery slope there. So I would say it's better to think of Hebrew as one of, one of many Northwest Semitic languages. Um, It used the same alphabet. It didn't, you know, it used the same alphabet as the Phoenicians, as the, Arameans as the Moabites, etc. Um, so they didn't, there was nothing special about the alphabet. So that's why he, Caleb and I, we're not, we're not letter mystics, you know, we're not into this uh, the gematria, you know, whenever we do the gematria, it's, it's just oh, totally tongue in cheek. What a great term, letter mystics. Yeah, letter oh, Hebrew yeah, letter like or Hebrew word pictures. That that's all nonsense. So, so I know people have sold a lot of books on that. Uh, but then the second part of her question. If I remember right, Caleb, she says something about that the that the Israelites are really a sect of Canaanites. How, how do you have that in front of you? How did she I do say have it? it in front of me? She says she used the word sect. The statement is the Hebrew language is uh, Canaanite. Wondering how true this is. From the beginning, the author blatantly states that the that the Israel people are just a sect of Canaanites. Yeah, so that that I would say once a guy made that kind of comment, I'd turn it off. Yeah, shut the book. Yeah, I mean, I the, um, who this is just not going to help my faith at all. It's not going to help understand the Bible. Do you um, have different categories that you read in? Because I do. What I mean by that is, like, I'll open a book and think I'm going to learn something from this book. I can't wait to learn what this person has to say. Then I open another book and says, say, think this guy is a heretic. But I want to see what the heretic has to no, say. I told, and I think I told Bree in, in one of the subsequent back and forth comments was, look, just remember that when you're reading a scholar, you know, there's people trying to fit. They, they've marginal, they've taken faith out of the picture and they're trying to make sense of the archaeological record. And the best they can do is just to describe the emergence of, of you know, where does the Hebrew Bible come from? Oh, it comes from 
Well, you know, it looks like it's a Canaanite language and they just modified Canaanite religion to make a new religion. It's totally without um, any kind of faith element. And so it's informed solely by the materialist view, um, which is going to end up into like a kind of Marxism where you have tribal groups vying for power and then using mythology to justify oppression of people, you know. Joshua asks... What is the earliest Northwest Semitic language? Uh, I mean, I, I would have no clue on that. The earliest that we have actual, I mean, so there's a question is where, where what do we, how do we answer that question? Well, we would have to look at the archeological record and you'd probably say the earliest attested would be Ugaritic, you know, in the 14th century. But they're full-blown myths. I mean, they're full-blown stories and poetry. Right. So you know it didn't. It, and so the, the problem is just because somebody wrote something down doesn't mean it didn't exist before it was written down. Right. But from the materialist view, we just don't have access to that. We, we, we only have what survives. That's why the faith element is, is very important. Now, for, for the secular you know liberal scholar they're not they don't care about faith so they're saying you know we got to look just from the archaeological record um but people of faith are going to say no you know uh, god gave the torah to moses you know at at, at sinai right. and so so faith would be hebrew you know the hebrew that moses wrote the torah in right but the secular scholars aren't going to accept that. They're going to say, no, you know, the Torah was written in Babylonian exile, you know, for by a people who are trying to build a history for themselves. So, and, and you know, that, and so that's, those conversations are kind of stuck in right. that, in that divide. So when I was on vacation, I added a new cup to my uh, cup collection. <laughs> Oh, I killed show me. This, this is, this is, is not going to help. This is not going to be uh, pertinent for anybody listening on podcast form, but for those on YouTube, just describe myself, it really well. Just got myself a Bob Ross mug, and it's Bob Ross with a back black a black background. On the other side, it says his one of his famous quotes that I love very we much, which says, "We don't make mistakes. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents." The whole cup is is uh, black. Besides that, as soon as you put something hot in it, Bob Ross paints his painting, and the black becomes a lovely background. It becomes a painting, yeah. So that will be added to the uh, added to the cup collection. Okay, you're gonna. Here's another Bob Ross uh, footnote on Bob Ross footnote. I think we were in Denver and there was a sock shop. Yes, like by our hotel. Yes. I went in there and I found these Bob, nice, yeah. lovely, fluffy socks that said happy clouds. Yes. And it was because you were talking about clouds earlier. It's like these sky blue, sky blue socks with these white clouds. And it had this almost the same picture of Bob yeah. Ross with the big hair. Yeah. And it just says happy clouds. You My know, wife I, loves those socks. So I got to tell you, I got to tell you, there's a couple of things that I do to relax. <laughs> One of those, I don't paint at all. I'm a horrible artist. I'm a musician. I'm not an artist. One of the things I do to relax which my kids think is a little odd. I sit down and I watch Bob Ross. I don't know if you know this or not, but you can watch Bob Ross on uh, Amazon video. You want a nice relaxing night, get yourself a cup of tea, sit down on your couch with nothing else to do. Watch Bob Ross pa paint a, a painting. And you know, he was like a military guy. No, he was a prison guard. 
or a pre he he yeah he was in some sort of okay he said he said that uh the reason that i've he, heard it both ways the reason <laughs> that, the reason that he has he's so soft-spoken is because he uh is because he was a prison guard and, he, and once he quit that job up in alaska he decided he was never gonna he was never gonna yell again uh also interesting note he hated the perm but it became his uh his staple he wanted to get rid of it but uh they said no <laughs> all right let's keep going <laughs> let's keep going um Enough, Bob Ross. So thank, thank you, Bree, for the, yeah, for the great, great question. Great question. We Hopefully got, we addressed it. We got this on a YouTube video. It was just a comment. The guy or the person, the YouTube channel's name is Embran, E-M-B-R-A-N. And he just says, please explain 1 Corinthians 15.24. Now, anytime that a person brings up 1 Corinthians 15 towards the end of the chapter, I automatically think that this person is probably trying to deny the deity of the Messiah in some way, shape, or form. Let's go there. I'm going to read this passage. Now, you can't just take 14. you got to take uh, 23 through 28. Um, and so I'll read the whole thing. I'm reading out of the NASB. It says this, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's and, and his coming, then comes the end, or then the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies. By the way, we've already passed the the verse that this person is asking about. I believe the verse that he's asking about is it says, "When he hands over the kingdom to the to the God and Father," is essentially. I think that verse. I'll bring it up in accordance here in a second. It goes on when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is expected uh, who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Now, this uh, is often used to say, see, look, Yeshua is not God. Yeshua is not, uh, you know, he's lesser than the father. He has to give back the kingdom to the father and he will then be subject to the Father himself. So obviously, Trinitarian theology must be wrong, or even Binitarian theology must be wrong. Yeshua is not on equal ground with the Father. He is subject to the Father. He is, And I've even heard people say he is a created being uh, that uh, has come to simply be the Messiah and has no divine nature at all. Um, I fully reject this and think that that such a um, a reading of this text completely misses the point of the text itself. And I ultimately think that this comes into the discussion of uh, what it means that Yeshua is begotten of the Father. Something that I think, I, and let me let me show my full hand here. Um, this I'm sure will get a lot of emails. I actually think that a lot of the church fathers got this wrong. I think that the idea of what it means to be begotten of the Father, has nothing to do with the idea of birthing or anything like that. I mean, certainly we can say that the Holy Spirit begot Yeshua in Mary's womb, but ultimately the idea of begotten, Paul says in Acts 
that uh, that Yeshua was begotten when? At his resurrection. So what does it mean that he was begotten at his resurrection? He was pr- proven to be begotten at his resurrection. Well, this means, this is covenant, covenantal language. And what the, uh, what the Suzerain Vashel Treaties would do back in, in uh, the ancient time, the 1400s and whatnot, some of the language would be today, you are my son, I have begotten you, which meant that you have full authority. I have sent you, I, I have given you full authority over everything. What, uh, what is the other thing that a firstborn gets? Anyone? Anyone? It is the birthright. Christ has the birthright to all the world. And the reason why is because he is the firstborn. It doesn't mean that he was um, created. It doesn't mean that he was born of the Father uh, before eternity passed or anything like that. So the, um, the, the idea that uh, begotten somehow means that he was created outside of time or something is idiotic. Um, okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28 Rob, would you like to uh, take this, or do you want no, me go to ahead. go? I did the I did the one. You 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 go for it. Okay. Um. So basically, I take this to mean that uh, it is proof that his work is done. In other words, if somebody gives me a uh, something to do, uh, if somebody gives me uh, a task to do, if my father says to me, "Okay, I want you to complete this task." Once it's finished, what do I do? I present it to him. Here. Here it is. <clears throat> yeah, Christ is commissioned to do what? To go and, and save the elect, to overcome death. And it says so in this text, right? That the last that death itself is an enemy right. that is destroyed, that is put under his. So he destroys death. I, hang on just a sec. We got we have a uh, we have a dissenter in the chat room. Um, uh, you both are false teachers. Matthew Powell <laughs> eliminated all of your false doctrine in the new documentary he um, did on the Hebrew roots. Okay, uh, I'm not part of the Hebrew roots, so maybe do some uh, some some research before you actually comment. And there we go. All right, all right. <laughs> blocked. Okay. Um, so the idea is, is that the death of uh, the overcoming death is, is what Christ has done for the elect. In other words, covenant membership within the covenant. What do we have? We have, uh, blessings and curses. If you do these things, you will be cursed. In other words, sin has a retribution and that retrib- this is going to tie in perfectly to our next uh, discussion on Hebrews. What is the payment for sin? Well, ultimately, it's death. And so Christ has come to overcome death for the elect. And what is the proof that he has done this is when he hands back the kingdom to the Father and no more death is there. And Yeshua says in Philippians 2 that he has become a servant, right? Right. So certainly he's subject to the Father if he's a servant. He comes and he washes the feet of the disciples. So I mean, he's he becomes a he becomes a servant to the to the uh, creatures from the dirt that spit in his face. Mm. And now he takes the kingdom, he overcomes death, he hands the kingdom back to the Father. He says, "Done. I did it. It's accomplished." 
And this actually plays into also Matthew 5, 17 and following when it says, until all is accomplished. Well, the question is, has the kingdom been handed back to the Father without death? The answer is no. So all is not right now accomplished. Now, I know what the response is going to be. Okay, well, the response is going to be, he says on the cross, it is finished. Well, we would have to then get into the discussion of what is finished. But ultimately, the idea of 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28 is not a, a mark against Yeshua's deity. It's a mark of his deity. That's the point, is that he's overcome death. And the only the only being, the only thing, the only person, whatever you want to say, in the entire cosmos is, in fact, God who can overcome death. Humans cannot overcome death. Only God can overcome death. And so this is actually a declaration of Christ's deity, not a mark against it. Anything you want to say on that? Well, I like it. I can't wait for the uh, comments on that one. <laughs> okay. Um, let's I'm move still on. thinking about that one guy, that, that comment that you read that someone said. <laughs> oh, yeah. Matt Powell. Uh, so Matt Powell I mean, is, I, is... I think we watched a clip. I watched a clip of his video. It was so bad. Yeah. Well, it's like, I'm... yeah, I was a Hebrew... I was in the Hebrew Roots movement. And I was... There was like interview, if it's the one I'm thinking of. It's it the the it's such a well he I think he's zealous that's for sure yeah it's it's well, he's part of the, uh, the for those who don't know Matt Powell is part of the um, like the fundamentalist Baptists so he's in the camp that basically says um I, I mean they they have a lot of heretical doctrine but um yeah it, it, I, it's interesting because in a in a conversation um, where you're trying to expose a movement and you don't do enough research to even realize that the people that you are putting in under one blanket are not part of the same movement. <laughs> it shows a lack of, of uh, you know, my father always taught me, if you're going to do a job, do it well. It's not worth doing if you, you know, and this is always said kind of in terms of woodworking, which is why I don't do woodworking. I'm horrible at it. You know, my, my father would always say, look, you got to make square edges. You got to, you know, if you don't, right. if you don't sure it up, it's not going to, you know, it's going to fall apart. If you don't do this right, you know, measure three times, drill once, you know, saw once that, that was always kind of, you know, these were the things that my father always told me. And uh, that's, that's exactly right. And the thing is, is that this applies not just to woodworking. It applies to theology and it applies to making documentaries. If you're not going to even do, you know, if you're going to sit in your uh, your basement and and do what a, a very small amount of, of research, not even to understand that the people that you've put into a right. documentary about a you movement gotta, it's aren't like, in the movement. You, exactly. You've got to work at least <clears throat> as hard as they did. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> you got to work as least as hard as the people that it's like a football. Like if you have football teams in a competition, you know, it's the team that worked harder is the team that's going to win. Right. You got to, if you want to beat that team, you got to work harder than they do and you have to be wiser and quicker. And, and so if that's true in just the things of the world, it's, it's also going to be true in, in things pertaining to defending the faith. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and this is a, I know this is a whole rabbit side trail now, but it's, 
it's uh, maybe the YouTube. We've it, it's helped foster a laziness idea because I don't really need to learn anything because everything's <laughs> at uh, Doctor Google. Doctor Google, you know. Well, and, certainly, certainly, I think that that um, my generation and newer. So, in a, you know, I was born, for those who don't know, I'm a young and I was born in 1981. So you can do the that's math. That's probably old for some of our. That's that's true. I'm I'm pushing 40. I'm my In July, I will turn 39 years old. And one of the things that even my generation does is we've we've globbed on to, I guess it would just be overall Internet culture, which is that you, you know, you learn through uh, video and you learn from audio but, you know, there's a whole lot of like book reading that doesn't go on compared to generations before mine. And I think that there's some benefits to this. And I think that there's also huge negative um, results of this. And um, one of the negative results is, is that people think that everything that they, you know, that they can, they can uh, create a research pro project from Wikipedia and from YouTube. And this can be seen blatantly within the Hebrew roots movement and even within the messianic movement of people who have just done no research. They've never walked into a library to research the things that they're, you know, they, they don't even know what a theological library is. All they're doing is looking at, at the internet. And uh, that's, it's ultimately a very large problem. Now, don't get me wrong. I think that the internet can be, Hey, look, I, I, yesterday, I'm in. Uh, I'm studying in Acts 18 right now, and I I saw a ancient historian was referenced, and I thought, man, I wish I had a book that had that translation in it. Well, guess what? A university actually translated it into five different languages. One of them was English, so I was able to go and kind of compare. You know, my Latin is atrocious. Uh, I can not even stumble through it, to be honest with you, but. I was able to compare the Latin and compare the English, then go to the person who had actually quoted it to see if, you know, it seemed to line up. Line up. So, I mean, there, I use the internet. Don't get me wrong. It's not, I'm not putting it down completely. Okay, let's move on. Uh, before we get into our final and, and main topic, 253-465-3205. Uh, it's 253-465-3205. If you've been blocked from commenting on our YouTube channel, uh, it's probably because you've said something not too kind or smart. Um, <laughs> I'm not, that, that's not true. It's usually uh, just people who are ranting. Um, but you can still call our comment line, 253-465-3205. You can call, uh, you can uh, shoot us emails as well. See resource.com. Okay. Let's jump into this final email. This one from Trisha. Now this is a long email. There's actually three parts to it. I don't know how much we want to actually write. I think she has some really, really good things to say in each part. So it might be worth our, our while to actually uh, go through the whole thing, but we might not get to it. Trisha writes, she says, we love the Messiah Matters podcast. Thank you so much, Trisha. One thing my sister and I have been studying together as of late is the sacrifice of Yeshua, and maybe you guys can help us clear this up. The question we are struggling with is this, if, as the book of Hebrews says, and she's referencing, for those who don't know, she's referencing Hebrews 10, first um, first, I don't know what, uh, 15 verses or so. Uh, and there's a whole concept that is, that is, uh, put forward by the writer to the Hebrews. So the question we are struggling with is this, uh, uh, if as the book of Hebrews says, God does not desire sacrifice 
and we know they are not necessary. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, they're, they're, I don't. I wouldn't feel like we have the ability to say what's necessary and not if God commanded something. Well, I, okay. I, I think what she means. Let's give her the benefit of the doubt here, because I think that the the essence of the email is is a great question, and I think the question itself is a good question. But to say that the sacrifices are not necessary, I don't think is a a true statement. The sacrifices are necessary, but not for salvation. the The sacrifices are necessary, but not to take away the sins of of the elect or of Israel. That's not what the, and I think the writer of the Hebrews is hashing this out. That's not what the sacrifices were ever made for. The sacrifice, look, I, granted, I'll give it to anyone. The, I, I've heard this argument before. I know what's going to be said. People are going to say, oh, well, what about Yom Kippur? It was to take away the sins of Israel. Okay, granted, as a nation, Israel was to, to come together and say to God, we've sinned. And and give the sacrifices, but was it the actual blood of the of the goat that was brought to the sacrifice and sprinkled on the on the ark? Was that actually what atoned for the sins? I think no. The contrite heart of the people to do what God said was what brought about the the forgiveness of sins. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews is trying to uh, hash out. Sacrifices are necessary for our temporal. Clean, cleansing. It's not a sin to be unclean. We've said this many times, but to come into the temple, you have to be ritually clean. In a temporal uh, realm, there is clean and unclean. And to go into the temple, you have to be in a state of cleanliness temporally. The sacrifices help do this in multiple different avenues of that. So are the sacrifices necessary? Yes, they're necessary if we're going to, if there's ever going to be a temple again, which it seems there will be according to uh, many prophetic texts. And if we're going to go see the prince who is going to be reigning in the temple, what are we going to have to be? We're going to have to be in a state of cleanliness. So sacrifices are necessary, in my opinion, for ritual cleanliness. And this is not, I'm not saying anything new. There are, there are uh, Christian scholars who say this as well. Okay. So let's go back to the email now. So um, we'll put the caveat not necessary for salvation in, in to Trisha's question. Uh, they are to give to us an avenue to draw near. That I totally agree. But they are not efficacious as a sin covering. And so she clarifies. Why is the sacrifice of anyone necessary then, i.e. Yeshua? Isn't Hashem's grace, for those who don't know what Hashem means, it's another name for, well, it means the name, uh, name for the Tetragrammaton, yod Isn't Hashem's grace enough to cover all without the need for a, a bloody sacrifice, even if he provided it? Does it really take more than just his grace? And does Hashem really require a blood offering to satisfy the sin debts of mankind? So that's the first section out of three of her email. Do we want to stop? I, I kind of want to stop yeah. and talk about this. Yeah, there's a lot there. First of all, thank you. Trish, is it Trishia or Trisha? I'm not sure because I know it's got an IA at the end. Uh, thanks for the thoughtful email and the the support. Um, it's a it's a great question. One one point I would just make at this pausing here is God. It, it, one side of this, this is not the the whole explanation, but one important factor 
is God's communication to us of cost, the cost that, and, and we pray, you know, Yeshua teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins and, you know, and the, or forgive us our debts. In other words, it's very clear that Yeshua teaches sin and debt as analogous, right? For example, he gives the, the, the man who is, owes a certain amount of money and he can't pay it. And so he just begs, please forgive me the debt. And the guy forgives the debt. But then he goes, this guy who's been forgiven, goes and finds a guy who just owes him a little bit. And that guy can't pay him even a little bit. And he gets angry and he throws him into prison. So is it, why does Yeshua tell us this parable? Not because he wants us thinking about money, although, it, although the principle does apply in the world of money, he's talking about sin. And, and another example of a parable <clears throat> is that of, um, you know, two people owed a certain amount of money, one guy a little, one guy a lot. He forgave them both. Which one loved the master more? More, right. And he says, the one that was forgiven the bigger debt. And, and so, in God's wisdom, one aspect that must be part of our conversation is the cost. The cost of, of transgression. If I just sinned, I mean, here's an example. If I sinned, and every time I sinned, God just says, okay, you're good. I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you. But what, but I just keep on sinning. How is he a good father? How, how am I ever going to be a good son? Unless the will of the father and the value system of the father is communicated through correction and communication of cost and proper value, proper value. What is wisdom? from the father to the son, how will the son ever gain maturity and gain what is wisdom? He'd be rather just, you know, like the prodigal son, but with a uh, limitless bank account, right? Just, you know, drive the ship into the ground kind of thing. So it's a many multifaceted conversation. And I, I thought this would be a good place to pause and just talk about cost. Go ahead. Kid. So I think I, I think you're certainly right in terms of multifaceted conversation. One of the questions that my son who is seven asks on a very regular basis, and I must not be giving him a good enough answer because he keeps asking it. But one of the questions he asks is why would God create Satan if he knew that he was going to be evil? And the same thing could be said for humans. Why would God create, you know, I'm going to bring this into the, to the Hebrews conversation just, just a second. Why would God create humans if he knew that they were going to sin? Well, ultimately, the answer is for his glory, right? God, what is the chief end of man to glorify God, right? Which we are created. Forever, right? Yeah, we are created to glorify God. Our goal in life, the reason that we ha are here is to glorify God. Now, I think that uh, it's. I, I think that God does not want to just create robots that are going to do as He, you know. Okay, serve me. You know, presses a button and they serve Him. No, He gave us choice, and because of choice, the fall of man happens, and now 
uh, within the temporal world, God has, has made rules to show his glory, to show his love, to show his mercy. And one of those things is, is that the payment for sin is death. Life is in the blood. And ultimately, I think what Hebrews 10 is doing is making a case for why Yeshua is deity. In other words, the, bl- the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin, because, and he says this in chapter 10, because every year the priest has to continue to go into the Holy of Holies. In other it's words, commanded. Yeah, it's commanded. It's, com- it's commanded that the high priest confess his sin and the sin of his house and has a bull for his own family before the confessing the sins of Israel. How could God command that? What if what if Israel went a whole year without sinning? How could God command them to confess sins that they didn't confess that they never committed? Because it doesn't take away sin. Exactly. In the big picture. In the big picture. It but for the for the year they fulfill the commandment. They fulfill the commandment. But it's just a symbol. And why is it just a symbol? Because a a bull and a goat and any other animal is not eternal. It does, and, and sin is. This is one thing that people don't realize, is that when I sin, it doesn't just affect God this way in time. It affects God in both directions. In other words, <clears throat> sin is infinite, an infinite transgression against God's infinite holiness. And therefore, the only thing that can cover it is an infinite sacrifice. That's sin, why it's called sin, sin and death, right? Exactly. It, it's death. It's, 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 abs- it's, you know, God is life. Life comes from God, and death is. That's why. That's why things contaminate in the Torah. Things contaminated death itself, and things contaminated by a corpse, for example, cannot be close to that which is holy. There has to be a this force field of protection spatially, and then the guardianship of the priests and the Levites, so that so that death and holiness they cannot they can't touch. Let, the let, Torah okay. point. The Torah encodes all this this go ahead can we read let's just read uh, hebrews 10 uh, this this passage real quick because i think that the context is very important what the writer of the hebrews is saying is yeah the blood of bulls and goats doesn't do anything that's a sacrifice that he doesn't want what he wants is contrite heart and the the sacrifice of his son yeshua is the sacri- is the sacrifice that god wants let's let's read this it says uh, starting in verse 1 of 10 For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. So Rob's point is made in the very first verse. In other words, that sacrifice does not overcome sin. In other words, offering a sacrifice does not make you right with God. It doesn't take away our sins. And it doesn't, the verb there, it doesn't make you perfect. It doesn't complete you as a human. Right. Uh, Continuing on, verse 2, otherwise, so now he's going to say what would happen if it did do that. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. <coughs> Pardon me, this is a quote from Psalm 40. And the context is actually quite important here. And the variants are very interesting as well within this uh, within the psalm. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure, 
So he takes the Septuagint rendering of um, a body you have prepared for me, which is awesome because he's meaning the blood of bulls and goats you have not required, but Christ comes in a body. <laughs> so then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. So in other words, blood, uh, blood of bulls and goats, not pleasant in God's eyes for covering sin, but Christ is after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, <clears throat> nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will he, uh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Um. And I, I think that the context there is he's saying that, look, animal sacrifice is not going to make you right with God. That's the point of the passage. Now, I want to read one passage out of my father's commentary on the book of Hebrews. This is the second volume, page 100, for those who would like to look it up. He says this, after reading um, this passage that I just read, he says, thus, the structure of the quote emphasizes, and he's talking about the quote the, the writer of the Hebrews makes of, of Psalm 40. Thus, the structure of the quote emphasizes, one, that the blood of bulls and goats is not what God has ordained as a means for uh, satisfying his justice in regard to the sins of his elect. That is, he has not desired these for that purpose, but rather as a foreshadow and dramatic revelation of his way of taking away sin, namely, number two, through the obedience of his incarnate son, Yeshua, who would give himself as the final and ultimate sin offering by which the redemption of his people would be eternally secured. I mean, you hit the nail on the head on that one. I don't, I mean, how, how are we going to say it better than that? <laughs> and the larger, yeah, and the larger context uh, in the Epistle of Hebrews is a contrast between the Levitical priesthood and the priesthood of Yeshua. And, you know, we can compare, contrast just the way he does in that epistle. The, even the best sons of Aaron are flesh and blood. Right. They die. Yeah, exactly. They sin. They sin. And he so talks you could about have, this. You could have, yeah, and, and they could be a great Torah teacher, but they're going to die. And they have a limited ability to reach people with the yeah. message of the scriptures, etc. But Yeshua lives forever. In both ways. Um, he, plus... <laughs> Plus, a, a, a son of Aaron can't bring somebody to repentance. The best he can do is to say, right. you're right. in transgression right now. You <sighs> need to confess your sin and you need to bring a sin offering. But if the guy's like, eh. And I want to. No. But Yeshua knows yeah. the hearts. Exactly. And we know this from the book of Isaiah. Under the uh, sons of Aaron... There could be someone who brings, let's say, a bull uh, or a, a bull for a um, a uh, burnt offering, and they could be sinner, you know, brutal, evil sinners, but they're hiding it and they're bringing this they're bringing this burnt offering as this show of worship, and the priest can't see his heart. The priest might not know that this guy is a transgressor, and so then they bring in the burnt offering and offer it on God's off. Uh, Right, and then that's where God says, "You know, I'm sick of your your Sabbaths, your new moons, your burnt offerings, because 
that's the failure uh, it, and it demonstrates the limits of the Levitical priesthood. That's not so with those who are in Messiah. Yeah. Because Yeshua's priesthood, Yeshua sees the heart, right? right. Uh, and and also he writes the Torah on the heart of his people. That's, that's not something a, a Levitical priest can do. So that's what the book of Hebrews does. It, go, it goes back and forth and contrasts how... But even though we see it, it outlines the limits of the Levitical priesthood, that doesn't mean Levitical priesthood bad. Right. It just means Levitical priesthood. This is what it is. This well, is its limits. Well, and let's, you know, let's just say this. I don't think that what the book of Hebrews is doing is saying Levitical priesthood bad. I think it's saying right. what you have assumed the Levitical priesthood is for is not what it's actually for. Right. In other words, it holds the Levitical priesthood holds a place, but it's not what you think it is. Yeshua is what you think the Levitical priesthood is. That's for something temporal. It's for something over here. Yeshua is the one that takes away the the, the sins of the elect. So um, I think that the writer of the Hebrews is categorizing for us the actual category the ca- categories of what how we're supposed to see the Torah. The sacrifices, the priesthood, all these things. It's a wonderful book. Here's right. another. Here's a one little bit here too, because it it kind of connects to our First Corinthians 15, because it this passage, like First Corinthians 15, passage we looked at, alludes to Psalm 110. It says, uh, if I read a little bit more before we end here, uh, uh, Hebrews 10, starting with verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering mm-hmm. repeatedly the same sacrifices. So this is, he's describing it as if it's happening, right? Which can never take away sin. But when Messiah has had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's allusion here to Psalm 110. Yes. Waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Again, Psalm 110. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Then it says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. Uh, uh, for after saying, right, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. Uh, I will put my laws in their hearts, write them on their minds. And then he adds, who's he? <laughs> he adds the Holy Spirit. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Even though it's Jeremiah, right? he's quoting, it's, um, it's, the, it's clearly thought to be, this is the Holy Spirit. So, Jeremiah is speaking um, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But then it says, for where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That means we must understand where Jeremiah says, by the Holy Spirit, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That is a that's a that is something that the Levitical priesthood must not be able to accomplish. Exactly. Because why would God command a Yom Kippur every year if he was going to never remember their sin yeah. again? So there's he's he's talking about new creation life in right. Messiah, and this is the you know the the coming kingdom. Of course, we're we're in a world now where even though Yeshua has had victory over death, we are still waiting for the kingdom. Right? We still yes. are waiting for this kingdom where. 
where this actually becomes a reality for us that right. death is no longer and that his kingdom is established and that and we have these little hints of of what that's going to look like but we don't know fully what it's going to look like yeah. but back to the bigger question is you know why why did god have sacrifice if he could just say oh it's forgiven because sin costs, right? And the way Caleb put it is sin is an offense against God's holiness, against his character, against his person, against him as creator and his authority and sovereignty. And he's not, he, can't, he can't be in integrity with himself and let it slide, right? There has to be, there's, you know, we speak the truth in love. And, and if sin is part of the problem, it has to be, reckoned as and described appropriately right and part of that discussion has to do with the cost of sin the wages of sin is death it says yeah all right guys we uh thank you so much for being a part of the conversation and uh i mean when i say that what i mean is that we build this show around your uh, emails, your comments on our YouTube, and your phone calls to uh, our comment line, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so keep those coming. Also, I'm going to say it one more time. If you have not already done so, please do us a huge favor. Stop what you're doing. Go to our YouTube channel right now and press the subscribe button. It might not seem like a lot, but it actually helps us out a ton. And it's one of the ways that we continue to be able to do exactly what we're doing. So go press the subscribe button on our YouTube channel. All right, guys, uh, we hope that this conversation has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. <laughs> <laughs>